What is reality? What is real? This week, I had the great privilege of listening, going to a lecture and question and answer session um, from uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist and writer, Marilyn Robinson. She is uh, teaching a class in, at Yale this semester on Shakespeare, so here for a semester, and she's giving some more public lectures. Keep your eyes out for them. But she writes a, an essay in her book that came out at the beginning of this century. It's funny to say that now, this century, but the turn of the century, uh, a book of essays, The Death of Adam. And one of her essays is called Facing Reality. And it addresses that question of what is real. Anyone who reads and writes history or economics or science must sometimes wonder what fiction is, where its boundaries are, if they exist at all. The question implies certain distinctions as between fiction and fact, or more cautiously, between fiction and nonfiction. I would suggest that while such distinctions are real, they are also profoundly relative, conditional, and circumstantial. All right, now she's going to get into a lot of stuff in this essay. I'm going to read a bit more. But let me just pause to just ask you the question. We heard scripture read. We heard about a dream that happened to Jacob. Was that dream real? He dreamed about angels ascending and descending this ladder, the staircase, and God in heaven speaking to him from above. He was dreaming that. The text is plain. This was a dream. And then it says he woke up from the dream. But then how did he interpret it? Did he interpret it as merely a dream? Or did he interpret it as real reality? Marilyn Robinson goes on. We have put together among ourselves a rigidly simple account of life in the world, which we honor with the name, capital R, reality, and which we now assure one another must be faced and accepted, even or especially at the cost of those very things which society as we admire are believed by us to value. For example, education, the arts, a humane standard of life for the whole of the community, Science fetches back from its explorations mystery upon mystery, yet somehow we feel increasingly sunk in a world of mere things, in a hard-edged, capital R, reality that disallows imagination, except to exact tribute from it. Sunk in a world of mere things, in a hard-edged reality, in portraits which assert its own power and ferocity, or in interludes and recreations which concede by their triviality that only real, capital R, reality matters. Our present world, our present model of the world is a fiction based on notions of objectivity and of the character and implications of science which are a hundred years out of date. Let me pause to say, here's what she said in person this week on campus. She said, I'm about to say something that one thinks one wants to say until they say it. I blame so much of this on the universities. She herself is a university professor. 
And then she said a few things, and she said, for, for example, there are people walking around who actually think they have an id. Can you imagine such a thing? But that's real reality, apparently. But it's based on uh, implications of science which are 100 years out of date. It's based on the flotsam and detritus and also the floor sweepings of all disciplines, psychology, penology, economics, history, all of them. But from them, it takes its important tone, helping, helpful in magnifying any present obsession. For many of us, it is true to say, oh, it's reality that marks our ballots. It's reality that rears our children. It is such a poor contrivance that we would not believe in it for a minute if we did not want to. But it flourishes because it is the servant and gatekeeper of dearer interests, a prize dependent upon which we, in fact, think we depend. All right, very deep. Uh, it's hard to follow all these things. So buy this so you can read it and slow down with it. But let me, let me read the last little bit of this essay, Facing Reality. And, and by the way, she's this, she writes these, she's a remarkable historian, she's an expert on Shakespeare, but she's also a fiction writer. So this, her essay is essentially pointing out that fiction can tell these deeper stories, can point us to the deeper reality. Anyway, so here she goes. But now, in light of all this, what about religion? If we do, in significant, number, in, in significant numbers, actually believe that we have a greater and a different destiny than other created things, if we believe there is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed and who takes almighty and everlasting cognizance of our actions and our thoughts, and I think these views are widely held, how do we represent the world to ourselves in terms that effectively disallow such considerations? Where did religion go? I know I risk being unfair in characterizing television religion because I have not paid much attention to it, but it seems to me much more television than religion by a good margin. But what if, in important numbers, we believe there is a God who is mysterious and demanding, with whom one is not easily at peace? What if we believe there will be a reckoning? I find no evidence that such beliefs were felt to be discredited or that they were consciously abandoned. They simply dropped out of the cultural conversation. But at the same time, we adopted this very small view of ourselves and others as consumers and patients and members of interest groups, as creatures too minor for even death to pause over us. If we do still believe in the seriousness of being human, while we have lost the means of acknowledging this belief, even in our thoughts, then profound anxiety seems to me an inevitable consequence. And this may account for both the narrowness and the intention, intensity of the fiction that contains us. It is our comfort and our distraction. We are spiritual agoraphobes. Fear of the outdoors, fear of the unknown. Spiritual agoraphobes. Jacob, given a dream, imagine if, as he woke up from the dream, he just said, ah, it's just a dream. There's no deeper reality. 
All that is really real, I've known all along, all that's really real is the rock that I'm laying my head on. Rocks are real, I'm real, I'm going to die. That was just a dream. There's no deeper reality. Well, there is indeed this great and deeper reality. That's what we are all here celebrating and asking God to deepen our awareness of and, and um, dependence upon and assurance of all that much more. Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4. And if anybody wants to come up here and verify for themselves, this is in fact the most well-worn page in my Bible. This, it's the one page that's like now ripped. And that doesn't say anything about my spirituality. It says so much about how often we use this text. In fact, this was the text that we used for Ascension service in the past year. And it's a text that's so central to real reality that it's our text this morning. Let's pray this morning. Thank you, Father, for inviting us into this dream of Jacob which was actually pulling back the curtains on real reality. Inviting us into your very presence. And in this world where we do have rocks for, that we lay our heads on, where there are things that we can feel and touch and smell and see, and they just seem capital R real, capital R reality, we lose you. We lose the real reality which is our presence in heaven with you, ascended with Christ. So open our eyes, open our hearts to the real reality more and more this day. In Christ's great name we pray, amen. What does it mean? What does it mean? We've been talking so far about reality. What does reality mean? But in order to answer that question, we answer the more precise question, more specific question in this text. Did you notice there in verse 10, the question comes up, what does it mean? Verse 9, it says that. What does it mean? So the more precise question is not, it gets at what does reality mean? But the more specific question is, what does the ascension mean? And so here it is. I'm giving away the end of the sermon here at the very beginning. In order to understand reality, you must understand the ascension of Christ, which marks our present age like nothing else. What does this ascension of Christ mean? In this remarkable text, which, as we've said, we use it all the time as Christians, these, these early chapters of the book of Ephesians, why do we use these texts? Because these are the texts that show us Christ and his work, which is the deepest truth of all. There was a uh, really encouraging discussion this past week um, at our Mission Anabino um, Commission meeting where we taking steps and seeing God work and taking the next step with the progress of the mission, the progress of the church, and it was, it was fun to be in on a discussion with current bishop. And so plans have been approved for Christ Presbyterian Church Milford to begin their public worship in the months to come. And you'll hear more about those plans. But in the, then in the discussion, we asked him, well, what will you be preaching on as you begin the life of this church 
and your first public worship sermons, what will you be preaching on? And he said, I want to preach about Jesus and the richness of Jesus. And so he's suggesting preaching from the book of Ephesians. This rich book, this, this page in my Bible that's all torn up because it's the center of reality. What a great answer. But then we also asked, well, what about maybe consider using Preach, preach through one of the Gospels instead because there's the story of Christ in a narrative form and that might be more helpful for the launch of a church. You figure it out though. God will anoint you. God will help you. What's the right answer? To preach Jesus from the Gospels or to preach Jesus from Ephesians? And the right answer is yes. So we see all this in Ephesians about Jesus but it's built on a prior knowledge, some awareness of who he is what he did in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so here's how we see this text answering this central question of reality. What does it mean? What does the ascension mean? And we're going to say, we're going to say that this text shows us the five answers to what it means. Here's the first. Right there in verse 9, it says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. So here's the first thing the ascension means. It means that there had been a prior descension. By definition, we wouldn't be talking about the ascension if, he wasn't, if there wasn't movement from a lower place. If he was always there, there would be no concept of the ascension. So the first thing the ascension means is that it, be, it, it points out that there was a prior descent for him to come down low so that there could be an ascension. But here's the thing. Now we actually need to walk that back. Because wait a minute, wait a minute. If the ascension, if the ascension means there was a prior descension, wait a minute, that actually shows us that Christ, prior to his descent, was the eternal Son of God. Does this, this make some sense here? So the ascension, what does it mean? It means there was a descent. But the descent means that he descended from his reign from all eternity. That prior to the descent, Christ has always been in the heavens. As the Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the ascension reminds us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He's not the Son of God who earned that status by proving himself on planet Earth and now I can ascend, earning the status of the Son of God. No, no, there was a prior descent. He was the eternal Son of God who descended. Here's how Calvin puts it. And by the way, sorry, I'll try to stop referring to Marilyn Robinson shortly here. But in answer to one question, who is your favorite theologian? She said, John Calvin. Read also John Flavel, and uh, I saw John Flavel on Craig Lucan's desk this morning, so we're doing something right here, I think. But anyway, so Calvin, Calvin, here's what Calvin says about this. He says, we see here an allusion to a seeming contradiction, but this seeming contradiction actually improves the sentence, because he ascended, 
but that he who was formerly contained in a little space while he was here on earth might fill heaven and earth. In his divinity, he certainly did fill all things before, but prior to his descent and then his ascent, he did not exert the power of his spirit nor manifest his presence as he did afterwards, after he had entered into the possession of the kingdom. So there's this great eternal son of God. The ascension proves that he was the eternal son of God, but it also proves several other things. Here's the second thing that it means this morning. It means that if he is the eternal son of God, that this descent, which preceded the ascent, was absolutely necessary. If he's the eternal son of God, he doesn't just go on road trips for Jack Kerouac, just, just to see, just, just random, I just want to, ex- there was a necessity to his descent. Christ's incarnation was no mere vanity project, no mere whimsical excursion. We know, we've already confessed it in the flow of our worship service to this point, that his descent was absolutely necessary made absolutely necessary by you and me, by our sin, by our death, by the curse we were under. So what does it mean? What does the ascent mean? It means that he was the eternal son of God. Secondly, it means that his descent was absolutely necessary, made necessary by our fallenness, our sin, our death, our curse. The third thing it means It means that Christ must have, by definition, fully accomplished his work and completed his mission before ascending. Do you get any sort of sense, if you read about Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that he is the sort of person that would give up, that would quit, that would abandon his people, abandon you, that would say, it's just, it's just too hard. I just, I just want to quit. You and I say that and experience that all the time. And Christ brings that to the Father near the very end, and the Father empowers him. This Christ was not going to abandon us. His, the ascent means that he was not retreating in any way. He had completed his mission. He was not abandoning his work by now ascending to heaven. He was taking over the work. The ascension, then, is no retreat. It is, in fact, a remarkable victory. That's what this quote that Paul uses here with verse 8. He's quoting from Psalm 68. That's what it fleshes out for us, this this vision of, of victory that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. This is an image of ancient Near Eastern warfare where the conquering king would have uh, captives in his train. He would bring people through town, exhibiting all the people he had captured, all the soldiers who had been mighty soldiers for the enemy. But now 
he's captured them. And kings would do this as a sign of their victory. Christ's ascent is his victory. He has taken over the work of the kingdom. But here's a fourth thing it means. And let's look a little bit more deeply at Psalm 68. Psalm 68, when you read it, and there's, there's something just fascinating going on here with what Paul does in quoting Psalm 68. And inspired by God as an apostle, he has the authority to do this. He doesn't change Old Testament scripture, but he makes use of it. And so in making use of this quote, and there's a couple different possibilities of what he's doing here. I'm not sure which it is. But he is either taking part of Psalm 68, ending the quote, and then expanding upon it. Or he is paraphrasing Psalm 68. Either way, this quote does not read exactly like the verse that it says from Psalm 68. Because Psalm 68 in the Old Testament says, When he ascended on high, he led a host host of captives, and he received gifts from men. That's That's what that imagery, that's the more obvious imagery in the Old Testament. With this military conquest, the conquering king conquers the enemy and then loots and plunders them, takes their stuff. And that is 95% of the time, that's how warfare is waged. Under Christian just war theory, that's never to be marking a, a, a healthy nation, and modern nations should not be marked that way where in victory you plunder and take their stuff. No, no, no. That's not just war theory, but that's typical warfare. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament world. The conquering king plunders and loots and receives gifts from men. But look what Paul says. And so here's the fourth meaning of the ascension. In the ascension, the ascension means that Jesus Christ flips the script. He flipped the script He doesn't take gifts from men. He gives gifts to men. This is remarkable. That Christ, in conquering you and me, did not strip us of everything, but instead gave riches to us. So, what does the ascension mean? It means that, first of all, he must have been the eternal Son of God. Second of all, it means that his descent must have been absolutely necessary, made necessary by our sin. Third of all, it means that his ascent was not a retreat, but it was a victory. He had completed his mission. And fourth of all, it means that he has now flipped the script. He has changed reality, as it were. And so that leads us to the final bit. What does the ascension mean? If the controlling reality of this life now is grace, because he has flipped the script, if the controlling reality of this life now is grace, then the ascension finally, it means this. It means that the ascension is the beginning of mission. 
the mission together with Christ. Let me ask you a question. How much did you participate in Christ's mission in his first coming? Did you help or assist him in any way in his mission to atone for sin, to conquer the devil, to conquer death, to take over the universe? Did you assist him in any way? No, you did not. I did not. All we did to contribute to that mission is contribute the sin that made it necessary. But now he's on mission building his church. What do you contribute now? Everything. What were you invited to contribute to the first mission? Thankfully, nothing. Christ did not ask you to contribute to anything in the first mission because you had nothing to offer. You had no means of atoning for sin. So he didn't even invite you to participate in the mission then. How much has he invited you now? Entirely, completely, thoroughly. We are the mission with Christ, invited by Christ, the ascended Christ, in union with him to build his church in this world. We are now on mission. If you got here early enough, you might have had a chance to read that long meditation from a great book by Tim Chester, but I encourage you to make use of that this week. It invites you in to the significance of the ascension of Christ. And in particular, it leads us to this final point, that we, the ascension means that we are now in union with Christ, on mission with him. There is nothing more significant in all the world. All right, I said I wouldn't, but wrapping up with this, Marilyn Robinson in her comments. She, in referring to this idea that, can you imagine there are people who actually wander around thinking that they actually have an id, that they have an ego, that they actually have such a thing. And then she went on to say, essentially what our culture says to each other is if I were to say it to you in private conversation, you sh wouldn't you count it and consider it abusive? And that's this. All you matter for is to construct physical things in this material world. The effect and impact you have on this material world is the entirety of your significance. She says, if I were to say that to you in personal, like all, all that you matter for is you're you are functionally utilitarian, that you have no deeper significance. If I were to say that to you, you have no deeper, you should consider that abusive. And yet that's what our culture says about reality 24-7. Brothers and sisters, we've been invited into Jacob's dream. We've been invited into the real reality. We've been invited by this torn up page in the Bible, this central beauty of the presence of Christ now ascended and us ascended with him and on mission with him into all that really matters in this world. What good news that is. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, great king of all, thank you for welcoming us now into your presence, made possible by Christ. Christ's descent and then his ascent. And in ascending, he brought us with him. Thank you for pouring out gifts to us, gifts that we now use to build your kingdom, to build your church. Strengthen us in this joy each day. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.